Chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch As soon as the witch had gone, Aslan said, We must move from this place at once. It will be wanted for other purposes. We shall encamp tonight at the fords of Baruna. Of course, everyone was dying to ask him how he had arranged matters with the witch, but his face was stern, and everyone's ears were still ringing with the sound of his roar, and so nobody dared. I'm Katie, and this is Bethy. Welcome to For Narnia and For Aslan. Together we're exploring the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And in chapter 14, Aslan moves the Narnian camp away from the stone table. But that night, when Susan and Lucy can't sleep, they see him slowly walking back towards it. They walk sadly with him until he requires them to stop a little ways from the table itself. There, Aslan allows the witch's minions to bind and shave and beat him, and at last, the witch to take her stone knife and kill him. Wow. It's so serious. And sad and beautiful. Oh yeah, the writing is lovely. There's only one lighthearted moment that I saw. Oh. And it was in the very beginning when Lewis reminded us that, of course, it had been winter for a long time, but now the sun got strong and it had dried the grass. So now they can eat oh, outside. Oh, I forgot why that would be. I was like, why does it bother mentioning that the grass is dry? <laughs> like, I don't usually worry about that. No, that's it. Yeah, I love that detail. It's just such a fun moment to remember like, oh, yeah, every season there is a first time that you get to eat outside. Right. You're right. <laughs> and this was it. Oh, but then just like two pages later, it says, supper that evening was a quiet meal. Everyone felt how different it had been last night or even that morning. It was as if the good times, having just begun, were already drawing to their end. Mm -hmm. Aslan's emotions affect everybody. Right. He's getting very sad and they all know something's wrong. Well, what stood out to you in this chapter? One of the things was that Aslan had this very serious conversation with Peter where, you know, before he was starting to teach him how to be a knight, always clean your sword and all that. Right. And now he's teaching him all of the things that he needs to keep in mind to run a battle. Yeah. And it's actually pretty cool that we get some insight there. Right. But I have no idea why Aslan is like, yes, 15-year-old, run this battle <laughs> instead of these centaurs who know what right. they're doing. <laughs> yeah, this is your job now. Don't forget to put the centaurs here and the scouts there. It's just so unfair. And there's a line that just felt to me like the understatement of the book that Peter was feeling uncomfortable too at the idea of fighting the battle on his own. The news that Aslan might not be there had come as a great shock to him. Oh my gosh, it was yes. devastating. Yes. Oh, right? Like, oh, I thought this would be okay, <laughs> even though scary. Now we're sunk. Yeah, now we're all going to die. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, it was a good life. <laughs> and put a 15-year-old in charge. Perfect. <laughs> oh, my. So, yeah, that stood out to me. And then that moment with Aslan where Peter's like, don't you think that we should set up camp across the river so that it's harder for her to get to us? Mm -hmm. And Aslan's like, no, no, it doesn't even matter. Right. But, like, good thought. That's how a soldier should think. Right. But it doesn't matter. I know. Oh, so this sad. is such a sad chapter. Uh, yes. What stood out to you? I really liked the perspective as it was talking about how Susan that night couldn't get to sleep and she's tossing and turning and then she hears Lucy. And it turns out Lucy's had just the same experience. Mm -hmm. But it, we, you know, it followed Susan all along to that realization. Yeah, that was fun. I liked that. Did you notice that Edmund is not mentioned even once in this chapter? 
Oh, goodness. I didn't. But you're right. Not a single time except the witch mentions him. Oh, you're right. But she doesn't call him. But not by name. And I wonder if that's just like, yeah, he is so removed from this at this point that Aslan would have done this for anybody. Hmm. That could be. I don't know. Did we just kind of forget about him for a second? I wonder if it would have been hard to, you know, if it would have added too much of a whole new idea to try and talk about how Edmund's doing this night. That's true. It would have had to be a focus if he was there. Yeah, that's like a whole extra chapter. Because he just had this conversation with Aslan. He just saw Aslan somehow clear his name. And yet we're also realizing what it's going to cost Aslan to do that. And the last chapter was about Edmund. Mm -hmm. And this one's about Aslan. Yeah. So he's just not the focus this time, which actually feels perfect because we were just discussing in the last chapter how for the first time Edmund is able to not look at himself. And so we don't need to look at him either right now. Mm -hmm. True. Just another thing I noticed in this chapter was Lewis's tone as he's talking about all the witches folk, but such people and then goes on to talk about them and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grownups would probably not let you read this book. And then it just gives their names and it's things that sound scary. Yeah, but it's funny because as the list goes on, it sounds more and more like something that he's making up. <laughs> like it's like kind of cuter and cuter. It sounds a little bit um, like Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss-ish, yes. Yeah, he goes, cruels and hags and incubuses and wraiths and horrors, efreets, sprites, orkneys, woozes and eatons. <laughs> yeah. Just a reminder of like, uh -huh. oh, yeah, yeah, this is a kid's book. Thanks. <laughs> True. Oh, if you all are reading this book, there's this picture. And it's actually quite a bit like, oh, who's the painter that did? It's a crucifixion. It's all about the light. It's like a Rembrandt drawing or something. Oh. And it's just all shadow and light. Really stark image of Christ on the cross. But he's also in this beam of light that shows his mm -hmm. humanness but it's also like his divinity anyway here this picture is all dark and light it's this crowd of all these creatures around and you see the witch at the top of the table and it takes a minute to even find aslan well he's so covered yeah at one point it says he's so bound that he's pretty much just a mass of cords a thing i noticed just one last thing is that it's susan and lucy that get to go with aslan all the way yeah it's not so beautiful that it's the girls. It just is so like Christ when he's on the road and exactly. making his way to the cross and he sees all of these women who just adore him. Mm -hmm. And they stay with him even at the cross when everyone else runs away. Except John. Except John. Who's often painted more feminine. Interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Oh, I'd love to dive into that at some point with you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back. <laughs> yes. Well... I found this to be a really striking moment. The girls are walking with him. Susan says, are you ill, dear Aslan? And he says, no, I'm sad and lonely. And he said, I should be glad of company tonight. Made me think of the moment when he asks for the disciples to stay up with him, but they can't. And he's like, I just wanted you to stay awake. Could you just stay awake with me? Mm -hmm. It's actually really nice to know that Jesus was lonely. Right. Yeah. It's really comforting. It is just to know that like he really did experience every single 
emotion that we have. And I can kind of forget that he experienced loneliness because he's surrounded by all these people who love him so much. And he is just like constantly busy and also allows himself to take breaks. But even then, he's often with his friends. So loneliness is not something that I connect with Jesus very often. It's almost a relief to know that he experienced it. Which I think we see in the scripture too, but it's highlighted here so we can really see it. Yeah. Would you like to take us into some section for a sacred reading practice? Yeah, so where we're going to look today for our sacred reading is further on, actually very near the end of this chapter. So they've bound Aslan, shouting and cheering as if they've done something brave. They've shaved him, and Aslan looks even braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. A lot of things here reminded me of the the Stations of the Cross. Mm, yes. Like Aslan tripping and falling, or when he's shaved, it's like the station where Jesus is stripped of his clothes and the women watching at all the stages. Yeah. Lewis did an amazing job of uniting the idea of the crucifixion and Aslan's death. Yeah. So here we are at the end. And Katie, you and I are going to try chanting. Just feels right to do it with this passage because it's such a serious one. And chanting for me feels so serious. It's something that is practiced with monasticism a lot, and it's just a way to kind of sink into the text and notice every little detail. Awesome. Katie, we're going to do this in a way where I say a line and then you repeat. Okay. So here we go. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night. When it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. When it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wet her knife. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it. As if the knife were made of stone. As if the knife were made of stone. Not of steel. Not of steel, and it was of a strange and evil shape, and it was of a strange and evil shape. At last she drew near, she stood by Aslan's head. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. Her face was working and twitching with passion. 
But his looked up at the sky, still quiet. But his looked up at the sky, still quiet. Neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Okay. Hmm. How did chanting that make you feel about that passage? Did it change the way you felt? Hmm. Did you notice anything new or different about it? Just slowing down that much for me really highlighted the contrast between Aslan and the witch. Totally. Wow. And their emotion here, their confidence. And it highlighted what's already in the chapter, the seriousness, the momentousness of this moment. Absolutely. I noticed how different their faces were, especially Mm. that hers was working and twitching with passion. How long had she thought about doing this? Oh, gross. Mm -hmm. I know it's so evil. And how at peace is he with this? We don't know how long he's known that this would happen, that maybe this could happen someday. But it's part of who he is always. Right. Passion versus peace. It's just a fascinating moment. Yeah, his stillness to her. Even she's panicked almost all the way to Mm -hmm. the end. Even when he's all bound, she's still afraid of him. They all are. Absolutely. She's such a coward. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's amazing. And I wonder... We have this moment where we're reminded, oh, the children are still there. They're still able to see. And it just made me think of Aslan in that moment being like, maybe feeling some relief that he's not actually alone in this. He has some witnesses. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think of that idea? I think that is possible. Or even gladness that they're not up close being caught. Certainly, I would see, you know, he's doing this for them. He's doing this for Edmund. I don't know if he's able to take comfort from them in this moment. You know, in the scripture, Christ cries out, why have you forsaken me to the father? But it seems like a moment of utter solitude or rather isolation. But I think it is a moment of love. Well, right after this, she leans down and says some really horrible things, says that she now has Narnia forever, that she's going to kill Edmund after this, and that in that knowledge, he can despair and die. It was all for nothing. Is that line in something else, despair and die? I'm not sure if it is, but it is a killer of a line. Well, thank you for doing a chanting practice with me. I've always wanted to try it, and I've seen you do it before, and it's just so lovely to me, and this just felt like the right thing to do for this passage. Well, Bethy, are you ready to hear our scripture for the day? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. It's kind of a long passage today, and I'm thinking we might just listen to it and not even need to discuss too much. Okay. This is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Katie, I feel like that's the perfect passage for this chapter. Thank you for reading that. Yeah, it's a beautiful passage and chapter and both difficult. Both difficult, both beautiful, and also not something that sits alone. <sighs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it's followed up by more, and I'm so glad. Mm-hmm. What do we do with this chapter this week? I think when it comes to a chapter like this, the only thing that I can do with it is just kind of sit with it and take it in as a story worth hearing, a story worth thinking about. Especially this week, I was grateful for the reminder that Aslan, that Jesus as well, <laughs> experienced sadness and loneliness. Yes. And that when we are experiencing sadness and loneliness, we don't have to be alone in that because of this. Mm -hmm. Not a very practical application, but it's where I'm at. <laughs> what about you? 
I think I want to take something from our chanting. I don't know what exactly, like the image of the two faces up against each other. Mm. Aslan's nobleness and quiet, you know, when he lets himself be bound. I don't know how to apply that either. I mean, there's something about being the same, turning the other cheek and bring four others. But like you said, it feels like just a watching kind of week too. Yeah, feels like a week of stillness, of watching, of listening. I have my summer super packed, but uh-huh. these coming four days are like the only four days in the entire summer that aren't filled with plans because something fell through. <laughs> Great. Right. <laughs> so that's actually kind of perfect. I like that image of this is a week for watching, for listening, for waiting. Good things are on the way. <laughs> Amen. Are you ready to read us out? I am. At last, she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. But his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool! Did you think that by all of this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. This was not the end of the adventures of Narnia. See you next week with chapter 15 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Ooh, intense ending. Goodness, yes. <laughs> wow. There's this phrase that I've been thinking of, though, like a few times as we've been talking, that whatever is the worst thing that happens, it's never the last thing. Mm. Like a faith perspective. It's, yeah. So that's how it is this time. It's not the end. It's only the beginning. <laughs>